You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, good morning and welcome. Let's uh, open in prayer. Father, thank you for um, being with us this morning, being with us every day. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word. As we look into it this morning, Lord, we just ask for your, your insight, your encouragement and application for our lives. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do with it in Jesus name. Amen. So to marry or not to marry, that's the question, too. That's the second question. First question is to marry or not to marry. The second question is who to marry. Paul is going to answer some questions. Last week, no, not last week. I was gone last week. And last time we were together, we finished up chapter six and we, we finished with the Paul's admonition to the Corinthians to glorify God with your body, not just your spirit. So we dealt with, Paul dealt with over quite a few chapters, various and sundry things, but, but one of the things that he was focusing on was the concept that only the Spirit is important that the Galatians, or excuse me, that the Corinthians had. I'm thinking of renaming Corinthians how not to do Christianity. Um, but I think there'd probably be some resistance to the people who print the Bibles and it's, First Corinthians is a much more concise and packaged title, so we'll leave it alone. But so he was ending that chapter, encouraging the people who especially were convinced that it was only important what you did in the spirit, not important what you did in the body. And Paul countered that in the last verse of that chapter. He said, for you have been bought with a price. So he ties it to that. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The price that God paid, the price that his son paid, redeemed both the spirit and the body. Now, of course, we know the body's redemption comes physically at a later time, but it's a done deal. And therefore, glorify God in your body, Paul says. Now, we're going to go into chapter 7, and we're going to read the whole chapter. But my my um, my Bible titles it, Advice on Marriage. And... If anyone ever comes up to you and just out of the blue wants to give you advice on marriage, don't listen to it. But Paul, you can listen to. He can come right up to you and give you advice on marriage. Now, this is an interesting chapter, and there are some, there are some interesting questions raised, interesting uh, difficulties raised. But if it could be screwed up, the Corinthians knew how to do it. And so we will see in this chapter... Uh, as Paul begins to start answering the questions that were asked in the letter that were, was written to him, just how badly they could foul it up. And uh, the funny thing is, is that there's nothing new under the sun, but there's also, uh, unfortunately, nothing that happened 2,000 years ago that isn't still happening today, unfortunately. There's lots of Corinthians around today. So let's read chapter 7. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. 
the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except for agreement, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her unbelieving husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And thus I direct all the churches. Was any man called already uncircumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. I think we're going to stop there. Because I, I'm not going to make it that far for one thing. And secondly, um, it he begins to deal with more of the same, but some other things as well. So, how many are married in here? I know you're married. <laughs> I might be, but I ain't telling you. Your wife's married? Do you know who she's married to? Okay, that's a good thing. So, in this chapter, through chapter 11... Paul, he'll deal with some of the questions that were put to him in a letter. Apparently the Corinthians wrote them a letter. And, and I, I, I studied this. There's no, there's no extant copy of this, but there's numerous opinions about this letter. Some opine that it was just a, a letter of questions, but some also ha- are under the impression that because it was the Corinthians that wrote to him, they didn't write asking, so Paul, what do you think about this? And Paul, what do you think about that? It was more like, you said this, you're an idiot. Here's what we think and here's what's right. So it could be either one of those. But what's important is the answers that Paul sends back. Um, as can be, one of the concerns they wrote to Paul about is marriage. As can be typical in the life of those who are unsettled, possibly legalistic and misinformed about biblical things, excesses occur. Whereas the view that the body was unimportant was apparently rampant in the church, it was accompanied by the view that the body was sinful. <laughs> it is, uh, it's, it's not uncommon for two different directions, opposite directions to be present, uh, about a biblical teaching. 
in earlier chapters, we saw Paul deal with the idea that the body was unimportant and that only the spirit was important. This led people to attempt to satisfy the desires of the body however they could under any circumstances. The view that the body is sinful and only the spirit is valuable will lead people to deny the needs of the body, the natural and proper needs that God designed the body to have. Paul deals with that. And in chapter 7, as mentioned, the issue is marriage. The false view of the, this false view of the body led some Corinthians in a direction that was damaging marriages. Actually, there were actually some of the early uh, secular writers who had the opinion that Christianity was destroying marriages. And in some cases, when you look at the city of Corinth, you could see how they would come to that conclusion. Uh, people would, would, would not follow the proper procedure that marriage has. I know that sounds didactic and, and cold, but, but everything has to be done right, doesn't it? If it's not done right, it's done wrong. Very good. And, and there's a, there's a proper way to be married and an improper way to be married. I have experimented with, with all of the improper ways, so nobody else needs to. I think if it was dumb, dumb enough to do in marriage that it could be done wrong, I've done it. So, he deals with this false view that was leading Corinthians in a, in a direction that was damaging marriages. People were uncertain about many things, as evidenced by the fact that the Corinthians tolerated fornication, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, and concubinage. Juvenal was a Roman... Uh, a Roman poet in the first and early second century A.D. who wrote about women who rejected their own sex. This is going to sound like 2016. They fought in gladiatorial contests. They hunted wild animals with spears without covering themselves. And they delighted in feats of strength. Kind of sounds something like today's feminism in some ways, doesn't it? And there's truly nothing new under the sun. So, Juvenal, I, I read some of his poems. And if you ever decide to do that, you have to disabuse yourself of rhyming. <laughs> it, first century poetry is way different than modern poetry. Anyway, he wouldn't write roses are red, violets are blue. Some marriages are good. How about you? You know, or something like that. So verse 1, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now, concerning things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Most of the rest of this epistle relates to the questions that the Corinthians had put to Paul in a letter. Six times the phrase, now concerning, is used. It's used here, and in 725, it's used in 8.1, 12.1, 16.1, and uh, verse 12. So in verse in chapter 7, verse 25, he says, Now concerning virgins, so obviously he wrote to him about that. I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Notice how he connects God's mercy to him being trustworthy. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have the no- all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So you can kind of get a glimpse of what the Corinthians were struggling with about things sacrificed to idols. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. I'm thinking they possibly were the most unaware group in the history of the church, but at any rate... 1 Corinthians 16.1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so do you also. So they had questions about collections, questions about um, tithing and, and about giving. 1 Corinthians 16.12, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you 
to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Can you imagine? Apollos, I need you to go to Corinth. No. I don't want to go there. You've got to be kidding me, Paul. Why would I want to go there? That place is a cesspool. Precisely why I need you there. Anyway, that's that's just speculation. In each case where he says, now concerning, Paul is it is clear, Paul is responding to a question that the Corinthians had asked, as this is a phrase commonly used in ancient writing for such an interchange. Some believe that this verse actually refers to staying on marriage. Now, getting into the verse. Some actually, there's actually an entire dissertation refuting. Gordon Fee does a, an excellent dissertation refuting the concept that this verse meant that you should stay in marriage. It actually just kind of means what it says. He's, and, and we'll get into to to how he deals with it. Um, it's very unlikely. In fact, it's very likely, in fact, that Paul was married. How many of you are of the opinion that Paul was married at some point? Oh, okay. So there's very well. We'll look at some of the reasons. It says this. This is uh, this is from one of the commentators. We can be very pretty certain, fairly certain, fairly certain that at some time Paul had been married on general grounds. He was a rabbi, and it was his own claim that he had failed in none of the duties which Jewish law and tradition laid down. Now, Orthodox Jewish belief laid down the obligation of marriage. If a man did not marry and have children, he was said to have slain his posterity, to have lessened the image of God in the world. Seven were said to be excommunicated from heaven, and the list began. A Jew who has no wife, or who has a wife but no children. Understand that the commentaries that they they uh, placed on the Old Testament text often went far afield. But at any rate, God had said, be fruitful and multiply. And therefore, not to marry and not to have children was to be guilty of breaking a positive commandment of God in the world. A positive commandment of God. The age for marriage was considered to be 18, and therefore it is in the highest degree unlikely that so devout and orthodox a Jew as Paul once was would have remained unmarried. On particular grounds, there is also evidence that Paul was married. He must have been a member of the Sanhedrin, for he says that he gave his vote against the Christians in Acts chapter 26. It was a regulation that members of the Sanhedrin must be married men because it was held that married men were more merciful. Oh, I didn't get any reaction there. Okay. It may be that Paul's wife died. It is possible also that she left him and broke up his home when he became a Christian so that he did indeed literally give up all things for the sake of Christ. At all events, he banished that side of life once and for all and never remarried if he was indeed married. A married man could never have lived the life of journey in which Paul lived. His desire that others ideally should be the same sprang entirely, this man concludes, from the fact that he expected the second coming at once. Time was so short that earthly ties and physical things must not be allowed to interfere. It is not that Paul is disparaging marriage. It is rather that he is insisting that all a man's concentration must be on being ready for the coming of Christ. And is that not true, married or unmarried? That our concentration, our biblical concentration, should be on the coming of Christ. Another way, and another proper way of, likely the proper way of looking at this verse, is that Paul is quoting something in the letter they wrote to him. Here, we would say it like this. Now, concerning the idea that you have that it is not good for a man to touch a woman. So, in verse 1, where it says, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is not good for a, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The idea is that that is a quote from one of their letters, from the letter. 
This would be the question that the ascetics in the group would ask. Understand that the idea that the body is evil but the spirit is good can lead to two different trains of thought. The first was dealt with in the end of the last chapter, that being the idea that the body, being unimportant, can do whatever it wants because only the spirit is saved in the end. The second, and the one which Paul is dealing with now, is that the body is evil and must be restrained and beaten into submission. Paul is dealing with a horribly corrupt culture and he must paint a picture that the individuals in Corinth can grab onto. Those who were for laxity, toleration, and loose living, those who were for laxity, toleration, and loose living taught to rein themselves in to submission and learn to glorify with their bodies as well as with their spirit. That's who we talked about in the end of the last chapter. In this chapter, those who are for living a life of asceticism will be given different instructions. True to the nature of the Corinthian believers, uh, that struggled with prop- how to properly apply in Scripture, these folks said to themselves, well, the body is evil and must be reined in, and the best way to rein it in is to deny it any pleasure. To be truly spiritual, we will even deny ourselves the pleasures that marriage can bring and never even touch a woman. And Paul is saying, now, <laughs> concerning the, in the letter you wrote to me about the idea that it is good for a man not to touch a woman, he says in verse 2, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Now, this whole, at least the very beginning, the first half of this chapter is taken up specifically with the, with the explanation and advice on marriage itself and what goes on in marriage. Not everyone will be called to a life of singleness. Actually, probably very few will. There are indeed some, as Jesus implied, But for the most part, the common pattern for men and women was to grow up and to be married. In Corinth, there existed another reason to be married. This is not to denigrate marriage and make it look as some sort of a a protection from something to prevent immorality and to and nothing more, but rather uh, evidence is being realistic about the culture in which they live. In Corinth, it was difficult to walk down the street and maintain your purity. It would be like being at the beach all day long, every day. In, in August. <laughs> because of such immorality, and because of the fact that the normal desires that men and women have, being God-given and proper when indulged with, when indulged in within marriage, Paul encourages the men and women in Corinth to marry. Remember, this is the same Paul who wrote in the book of Ephesians, where he, uh, who wrote the book of Ephesians, where he paints a picture, a beautiful picture of the marriage relationship and even likens it to the relationship the believer has with the Lord Jesus Christ. It, the reality is, though, celibacy may be good, but it is not superior to marriage. And it has dangers and temptations that one will not find in a marriage. These dangers and temptations were exacerbated in first century Corinth. It would be like, it would be like, and I don't want to make it humorous necessarily, although it may sound like, but it would be like someone who struggled with sweets working in a donut factory. It just, it's not wise, <laughs> is it? <laughs> I would be eating the prophet. <laughs> in Genesis chapter 2, God himself, the Father, said, it is not good for man to be alone. Paul echoes that sentiment here in his own way. In ancient languages, the words to have generally meant to have intercourse, to have relations with. And so in this verse, Paul begins to deal with the asceticism that some were practicing in their marriages. It was not intended for the gospel to destroy marriage, internally or externally. The gospel and biblical truth is not meant to keep men and women apart, 
but rather to give them clear guidance on how to properly be together. Marriage was designed by God and has several uh, purposes. As I was studying the concept of the purposes of marriage, um, I saw I found everything from two reasons to be married to 12 reasons to be married and just about everything in between. So I tried to condense it down as I studied through it on myself. There's some clear, clear indications and uh, uh, anyone else who wants to, to speak up to this, that would be fine. But number one would be procreation. Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in Genesis 9, 1, after the flood, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the idea was to to have children, to have families, to grow the population. And to those who are afraid of that, um, right now, if you took every single person on the planet, you could fit them on their own small plot of land, which would produce food for them in less than half of the United States. So... 7% of the arable land on the planet is currently under production. We haven't yet filled it up. We've got a long ways to go. Um, I read, you know, you can speculate all you want, and speculation sometimes gives way to, to silliness, but there are those who believe if the planet was properly cultivated, it would support up to 60 billion people. You know how many that is? That's like a lot. Can I say that? Can I say like? No, okay, I'll quit saying that. So procreation, to grow and fill the earth. Companionship, Genesis 9-1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus himself and said, and he answered them and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother, father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They need to become, or they need to be, in a very real sense, friends, confidants, buddies. Um, the marriage relationship can create and provides the foundation for the deepest connection that people can have on this planet, as far as I'm concerned, as far as from what I see in Scripture. Um, I tell my wife things that I would tell no one else. Um, she tells me things. By the way, when you're when you're dealing with counseling and stuff, be very careful when you tell a husband stuff because it's probably going to get to his wife and vice versa. Just remember that. Unless they promise you it won't. So comp companionship, procreation, companionship. Number three, proper sexual union. Exodus twenty fourteen. You shall not commit adultery. And then Mark ten eleven and twelve. And he said to them. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, he is committing adultery. She is committing adultery. And then Hebrews 13:4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. He created this particular union for the proper place for sexual union. It's the only proper place. Not unmarried, not homosexual marriage not any other aberrant form of it. Two people, male and female, joined together, as it says in Matthew 19. <laughs> and in Mark 10. Number four would be the demonstration of the believer's union with Christ. Ephesians 5, 23 through 32. For the husband is the head of the wife, 
as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love, ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and to the church. So the the likening of the marriage relationship to uh, the relationship that the believer has with Christ is very real here. It's an intimate, close connection that has the potential, has great potential. Just let me put it that way. Um, in ancient societies, the statement to have his own wife is a reference to marital relationships, marital relations. It's clear that Paul believes in mar- believes marriage is good, that because both here and in the rest of this chapter and elsewhere in other places he wrote, he, that he wrote, he declares that marriage is good. In fact, in writing to Timothy, Paul warns him that in the latter days, one of the signs of apostasy will be that, and evil will be that, uh, they will forbid marriage. First Timothy 4, 1 through 3. But the Spirit explicitly says, explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and who advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Men who forbid marriage. They're going to forbid marriage. And I I just have to, and I'll talk about this again later, I just have to wonder that the rise of monasticism had to completely ignore this chapter in the Scripture. They just they must have taken the, what, what passed for a, a 7th century or 6th century exacto knife and just excised it from the Scripture. Because it's so clear what Paul is saying. Any yes? Uh, it's it's happened, and it's going to happen again. In the latter times, Paul says to Timothy, uh, warns him that in the latter days, in later times, so it's it's happened since then. It's already happened. It started with the rise of monasticism, where they 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 celebrated celibacy as a way of of more effectively serving Christ. That's just not true. Every person, we're going to see later on in this chapter, Paul will teach that wherever you're called, whatever you're, however you're called, that's where you can serve Christ. And whatever God brings you into, that's where you can serve Christ. Is not God the God of the impossible? Then he's also the God of the possible. And everything that he has made possible on this earth, he can glorify himself in it. Whether it's marriage or celibacy or or the work that you have, and we'll see that when we get to the later parts of chapter 7. Any other questions or comments? I think it's going to be, in the, in the, in the end times, it's going to be even more pronounced, though. Uh, we shall see. Verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. 
duty, that which is owed, a debt. Dues, specifically of conjugal duty. Uh, a kind of indebtedness implying an applied obligation due to the debt, that which is owed. That sounds awful accountant-like to, to reduce a marriage. But the fact is, when we promise to love, honor, and cherish one another till death do us part, that, that brings with it significant obligations. Um, it's, it's a contract, if you will. So not only is it wrong for a man not to touch his wife, it's his responsibility to meet all of her needs, including the need for marital relations. The idea that it was spiritual to withhold contact and not have a, pro- a proper sexual relationship was anathema to the Christian concept of marriage. The wife was to assume the same responsibility towards her husband. Now, it's going to sound like I'm beating the husbands more than the rest. But that's because that's what I am. That's what I can speak to more uh, appropriately. I will intellectually con- comment on the wife's responsibilities, but I'm going to go after our responsibility as husbands in this section quite boldly. The wife was to assume the same responsibility to her husband. If, however, there is some reason that this part of the marriage cannot be consummated, the command still holds true. But it is such that the husband and wife must render due love and affection towards one another. The concept of command companionship is far deeper than just the physical, but it does in fact include the physical. Um, now Paul states as an afterthought, but what the reverse is true, the wife must fulfill her responsibilities in the marital relationship to her husband. We all know the commitment and relationship are a two-way street. Are they not? It's got to be a two-way street. You, you you can't develop a relationship with a light pole. You just can't. It's never going to love you back. It's never going to care. <laughs> so Paul deals with the misunderstanding and the misapplication of piety that the Corinthians were working in their marriage. They were thinking that it was... If it's spiritual to be celibate, then in marriages it will be spiritual not to touch our wives. Of course, as the relationship deepens, the obliging goes uh, away and the relationship becomes truly loving where each gives to the other delightedly. Um, This responsibility that the husband has, for example, to his wife in the original language and concept was one of affection and care all the days of her life. Not just when he felt like it, not just when he thought she was deserving it, and not not when uh, she th- he thought she earned it. It is his responsibility to treat her with affection, kindness, love, and care, and the reciprocal was true as well, the wife to the husband. Some translations render this, uh, this word duty as the affection due and to the spouse. So husbands, do you know what your wife considers affection? Do you know what she considers affection? Or are you forcing your idea of affection on her? I bought my wife a rifle once. And some gals, that'd be great. Had I studied my wife, as Peter indicates I should have, I would have known better. She likes guns, you know, kind of like she likes vacuum cleaners. Don't buy your wife a vacuum cleaner for her anniversary. I promise you that's a bad idea. Unless she works for Electrolux. So, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. Um, the affection do. Husbands, do you know what your wife considers affection? Or are you forcing your idea of affection on her? In First Peter, husbands are counseled to study their wives. You, you know, to know them, to understand them, 
and to live with them in a way that brings them joy. And, and you know, it's, it's not a job. It's actually delightful. First Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as the fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, I'm not going to go into the implications of that because we just don't have time. But the implications are that a husband who does not live with his wife in an understanding way will have his prayers hindered. That's a bad thing, too. Two stories. One to amplify what Paul is saying here. And one to demonstrate what can happen when we don't daily render to one another the affection, kindness, and love we should. We should. The first story is a fictional one from Reader's Digest, but it gets the point across. It's called Johnny Lingo's Eight Cow Wife. It's about a young man on a Pacific island who wanted to marry one certain girl on a primitive island where the man paid the dowry for his wife and cows. I only have seven. Anyway, two or three cows could buy a decent wife, four or five, a very nice one. But Johnny Lingo had offered an unheard of eight cows for Sarita, a girl for whom everyone in her home village thought rather plain looking. The local folks all made fun of Johnny, who they thought was crazy to pay so much for a wife. But when the teller of the story finally sees Johnny Lingo's wife, she is stunned by her beauty. She asks him, how could this be the same woman? How can she be so different? Johnny's reply shows that he's nobody's fool. Do you ever think, he asked, what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband is settled on the lowest price, how the lowest price for which she can be bought. And then later, when the women talk, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, another maybe six. But how she, how does she feel, the woman who was sold for one or for two? This could not happen to my Sarita. Then you did this just to make your wife happy? I wanted Sarita to be happy, yes, but I wanted more than that. You say she is different. That is true. Many things can change a woman, things that happen inside, things that happen outside. But the thing that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In Kiniwata, Sarita believed that she was worth nothing. Now she knows she is worth more than any other woman in the islands. Then you wanted, I wanted to marry Sarita, and I loved her more than any other woman. And I loved her and no other woman. But I was close to understanding, but he finished softly. I wanted an eight-cow wife. Now, the interesting thing about that is it gets the point across that often people will live up to or down to what the significant people in their lives think about them. Be aware of that. Your children, your husbands, your wives, they'll live up to what you think of them or they'll live down to what you think of them. I, I struggle. I, the Jews really had this concept down and they would name people based on happenings. And I just can't imagine why that woman would name her son Ichabod at the time that I, I see what it was done for scripture's sake and for our, for us to understand. But can you imagine being saddled with a name like that and how people would look at you? Same thing. How do we treat one another? How, how do we talk about one another? How do we present each other to others? Cause we will live up to or down to what is thought about us. And the second story was written by an unknown raw author, which demonstrates what can happen to a relationship that lacks these characteristics. And as I read it, 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 the implications of this story were clear that this happens over time. When, when, when a relationship dies, it generally doesn't happen in, in a, an explosion. It generally happens over a period of time. It's called the wall. Their wedding pictures mocked them from the table, these two, whose minds no longer touched each other. They lived with such a heavy barricade between them that neither 
that neither battering ram of words nor artilleries of touch could break it down. Somewhere between the oldest child's first tooth and the youngest daughter's graduation, they lost each other. Throughout the years, each slowly unraveled that tangled ball of string called self, and as they tugged at stubborn knots, each hid his searching from the other. Sometimes she cried at night and begged the whispering darkness to tell her who she was. He lay beside her, snoring like a hibernating bear, unaware of her winter. She took a course in modern art trying to find herself in color splashed upon a canvas and complaining to other women about men who were insensitive. He climbed into a tomb called The Office, wrapped his mind in a shroud of paper figures and buried himself in customers. Slowly, the wall between them rose, cemented by the mortar of indifference. One day, reaching out to touch one another, to touch each other, they found a barrier they could not penetrate and recoiling from the coldness of the stone, each retreated from the stranger on the other side. For when love dies... It is not in a moment of angry battle, nor when fiery bodies lose their heat. It lies panting, exhausted, expiring at the bottom of a wall it could not scale. Why did I put these in here today? The Corinthians were taking, taking up false theology. And in that false theology, they were giving to the world a picture of marriage that was untrue. And some of the secular writers of the day wrote about it, how Christianity destroyed marriage. We hear all kinds of false prognostications about how evil Christianity is today. Unfortunately, a lot of it is coming because of people who claim to be Christians. It comes because of their behavior. And so what Paul and what the, what all of scripture, if you will, if you, if you look at it as a whole, communicates to us is that we are the children of God. We are the children of the Most High. And He has given us everything for life, happiness, and godliness. And to live it out by the grace of Christ under the work of the Holy Spirit is something that every Christian should be aspiring to. And so Paul is trying to get these Corinthians to think this over. And um, imagine, too, that they also have access to other scriptures. They could have read Genesis. They could have read the Old Testament and seen how God felt about marriage, what he taught, where, where Paul, um, where New Testament writers, um, quote the Old Testament. They had that same scripture. They just didn't study it. They didn't study the scripture and they didn't study one another. They didn't love one another the way scripture commands them to. And so these kinds of things happen then and they can happen now. Any comments or questions, concerns? Verse four. And we'll finish up here. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. We must study these sections in concert with other scriptures. This doesn't mean that the husband gets to tell the wife what to do all day long every day. Nor does it mean that the wife gets to tell the husband what to do and how to do it all day long every day. It's talking specifically about, and as we get into verse 5, where they were denying one another this particular part of the marriage. He's talking about the relationship, the marital relations. As if to punctuate the concept, the importance of this concept, Paul tells the men that they are not the only authority over themselves, and he tells the women the same. In a very real way, the spouses can exercise authority, if you will, over their mates. Hopefully, though, it would not come to that. Men would delightedly fulfill their responsibilities to their wives and vice versa. So normally our body is our own and we are to care for it and use it in a manner that, that God prescribes. In a marriage though, in a loving, committed marriage though, our body is 
belong to our marriage partners in a very real way. So, for example, in my relation with Kim, I take care of the heavy lifting because I know she's not made for that. And and that's not a sexist or it's just how it is in our marriage, uh, in our particular marriage. I take care of the heavy lifting and she does other things. This does not imply inferiority at all. It is simply a physical truth. This is a simple expression of what I'm trying to get across here, but men need to take this seriously. They have a deep responsibility to their wives. I can only comment intellectually on the reverse because I'm not a woman, but the same is true. Women have the same deep responsibility to their husbands. Paul is underlining the concept here by using the Greek word for authority or power, exousia. The King James renders it this way. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also, the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. So in Paul's mind, not only is the body not evil, but it is so important in the work of God in this life that in marriage, it must be given to the spouse wholly. The concept that celibacy was superior to marriage was so foreign that he took this time to put it to rest. The rise of monasticism must have had to ignore this entire chapter. And I cannot imagine, um, I mean, you read stuff like this and you go, how did that even come about, the, the monastics? Um, it's, it's the same thing that Paul dealt with in Colossians, chapter 3, um, that, uh, that maybe that has some form of help over a period of time, but we are not to consider asceticism a proper way of relationship with God, with relationship with others. So I'm, I'm going to actually just, we're going to finish up verse 5. See if there's if, how much is going on there. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It, this verse goes with verse four. I really shouldn't have ended it at verse four. So he's talking about the authority over their own body. The husband doesn't have it. The wife doesn't have it. They were depriving one another's. One another. Obviously, the Corinthians were taking the concept of the body being evil to its logical extreme and denying it any pleasure. In marriage, this would be depriving the partner and not loving them. Paul allows that there may be a time to separate for a period and give oneself to prayer, but he counsels the partners to come back together again to avoid temptation and sin. One commentator put it this way. This passage arises from a suggestion that If married people are to be really Christian, they must abstain from all intercourse with each other. This is another manifestation of that line of thought which looked on the body and its instincts as essentially evil. Paul declares a supremely great great principle. Marriage is a partnership. The husband cannot act independently of the wife nor the wife of the husband. They must always act together. The husband must never regard the wife simply as a means of self-gratification. The whole marriage relationship, both in its physical and spiritual sides is something in which both are to find their gratification and the highest satisfaction of all their desires. In a time of special discipline, in a time of long and earnest prayer, it might be right to set aside all bodily things, but it must be by mutual agreement and only for a time, or it simply begets a situation which gives temptation an easy chance. And then another said, There is abundant evidence in the New Testament that the early manifestation of those principles of asceticism which soon produced such widespread effects and which to so great a degree modified the reigning spirit of the church. The idea that marriage was a less holy state than celibacy naturally led to the conclusion that married persons ought to separate. And it soon came to be regarded as an evidence of eminent spirituality 
when such separation was final. The apostle teaches that neither party has the right to separate from the other, that no separation is to be allowed which is not with mutual consent for a limited time, for the purpose of special devotion, and with the definite intention of reunion. Nothing can be more foreign to the mind of the apostle than the spirit which filled the monasteries and convents of the medieval church. So again, Paul counsels the Corinthians to move towards balance. He must constantly counteract their tendencies to swing wide of Scripture whenever they try to apply a teaching. Let this be a warning to us and a reminder to us to seek the counsel of the rest of Scripture whenever we apply a concept we read. All the Corinthians had to do was read some of the accounts of Genesis about marriage and it would have disproven this idea. Clearly, marriage was a very honorable concept and the Lord Jesus Christ himself declared it so in the Gospels. And we'll get into more of this as in the coming weeks. Next week, I believe Jess will be teaching in the following week. And uh, then we'll get back into this. But you might read chapter 7, come prepared with no questions, because I don't want to answer any questions, especially as we get into the difficult parts. <laughs> no, really, bring your questions. Uh, it's an interesting chapter. Any comments, concerns, questions about what we just looked at? May God cement and bless the marriages in this church. So that they have the kind of outreach that only a godly marriage can have. Let's pray. Father, we just delight that you have created us for your glory. That we might, that everything we do as we apply biblical principles and as we live according to your word by your Holy Spirit and by your grace, we present to the world a picture of Christ in the church. A proper picture. Lord, let us always be about doing that. Uh, not for our own gain or glory, but for the glory of the Son of God. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.